Genesis chapter 43, let me talk to the Lord for us while you get there. Father, we are grateful to have a relationship with you. Uh, if you leave us to ourselves, we would not have that. We, we would only be your enemies. So we praise you and these songs remind us that you accomplished what we could not. We are eternally grateful for that relationship. Thank you for the word of God that we can study it. Thank you that we can look so long ago and still see ourselves in the text, both sinful and repentant. And I pray you'd help us, Lord, as we strive to walk with you in a greater way, more pleasing to you, not because we have to, but because we're set free from our sins and we get to walk with you. So challenge us tonight from your word. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to be both exhorted and encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so interesting studying the book of Genesis. It is, of course, the oldest, uh, or at least what we believe to be. Job somewhere in there as well. But um, you're, you know, in this period, chapter 43, you're pressing into uh, an earth that's probably close to 2,500 years old. That's a long time ago. And yet, what strikes me is people don't change. <laughs> we still continue to struggle with the same things. We struggle with anger, unforgiveness. We think God is against us at times. This, this is exactly what we're going to see in this text. And yet God has done nothing but prove himself faithful over and over. He is the Almighty who controls all things and deals with his children in absolute perfect love. And yet, yet like Jacob, we think he's against us at times. So is his, is his actions wrong or our view wrong? <laughs> well, I know where you can put your money on. It is our view of God. And so as I studied this again this week and began to prepare this message, I thought, Lord, ooh, man hasn't changed much. And it's interesting. Um, we are the ones who are mutable, meaning need to change and are changing. God is immutable. So, so think just a moment as we look at these people here. They are struggling with similar things that we struggle with. And yet they're dealing with a God who is immutable, meaning he does not change because he does not need to change because everything he does is perfect. And yet they wrestle with so, so many things that we ourselves wrestle with. Let's look at a couple of thoughts tonight as we work our way down through this text. Number one, God will use our consequences to bring about his will. Anybody suffer from consequences of sin in your life? I think everybody in this room should say yes. I have consequences in my life because of sin that I chose. Now let, let me be clear here. Because I don't, I don't want you going away going, boy, God's pushing the consequences on me. Perfectly forgiven people still have consequences of sin. Now God is gracious to us in our consequences. And you stick the consequence in there. Maybe it's sin before salvation. Maybe it's sin after salvation. Whatever it is, God is still gracious in these things. But we, we do suffer from consequences. And in this text, we, we see that a lot. 
Um, and, and we really see where God is using, what's so fascinating about this text, is he uses consequences to move this nation, this little baby nation, Jacob the father of these 70 people we'll see, he moves their consequences in such a way to bring about his will. And he still does that to this day. Now that's grace. You, you and I, we, we may not, well, may not, we are not nearly as gracious as God is. And people who have wronged us, who have sinned against us in a sense, we are often very heavy against them or heavy-handed against them. And yet God does use the consequences of man, consequences of our sin, to bring us about to his will. And he does this over and over. Now think about their sins. The boys, these sons of Jacob, they're liars. They're attempted murderers. They're really thieves. They've stolen a son from a dad. And yet, with all of that mess, God is using that to preserve this nation and to preserve the seed of Christ. Think about their father. Jacob struggled with trusting God. We we see his quick responses at times. And in this case, the sin of this favoritism of certain sons, loving a particular woman more than he loved the other women in his life, which seems funny to say that. However, there's a sinful tendency in there, has resulted in tremendous animosity of the boys against this one son. All that has brought about (laughs) the circumstances that we find in our text. Joseph is the Lord of Egypt in all intents and purposes. He is the one who is going to rescue this nation. God is doing it through him. Despite the lies, the favoritism, and all of the deceit that went on, God has chosen to use Joseph and he's using the circumstances or the consequences of his family's sin to bring about their salvation, physical salvation. Look at verses one and two with me. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had bought from Egypt. Remember that last chapter they'd gone there and came back, Simeon's in jail and so forth. We'll get to that. And their father said to them, go back now listen to his terms, buy us a little food. Buy us a little food. The timeline is a little bit difficult here. Um, when you get to Genesis chapter 45, verse 6, when the family comes, all of them in, he says, we have only been through two years of this famine. There are five to go. So by the time he gets all the family back down there, we realize that that there's only just a portion of the famine that's gone by. So, so there's a good year, a good year at least here, if not more, um, that is happening here. Um, the contracts from Egypt that the ranch, the, the family business needed, never got established because of the events of 42. They went back there. They were accused. Simeon was put in jail. They had enough grain to get home and so forth. So there's no contracts. That means the family business is suffering. Joseph would have been the one to authorize those contracts, and they're not done. Instead, Simeon is in prison. The brothers' lies and Jacob's pride are paralyzing this family. They don't have what they need. The business is faltering because of their sin. Everything is tanking. And notice notice Jacob's words here, buy us a little food. 
I don't think they're starving. If you look in verse 11, look what he does here. We'll see this in a minute, but just look ahead here just for a second. He says, take some of the products of the land in your bags, middle of the verse there, and carry them down to the man. This is Joseph's going to be referred to the man all the way through this text. As a present, a little balm, a little honey, some aromatic gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. So you realize, that, remember, this is a very, very wealthy family. Um, their, their overall business is suffering, um, and, and yet they still have what they need, probably. Most likely to have the provisions. But grain makes bread, and grain feeds livestock, and, and, and bread is a, a major food group in, their, in the ancient days. Those things are starting to run out. They've probably bought everything their money can buy around the area. And you know they have wealth because he sends back the payment for the grain and he doubles it to send it back. So when there's not grain, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still start to starve. And there's a problem going on here. But I don't think they're starving. Sometimes you look at this text and Jacob's laying there in the dirt. He goes, if you don't go, we've got to die. I, I don't think that's what the text is saying here. They got almonds and pistachios and all, they got all kinds of stuff. This is, this is a, a wealthy family. But there seems to be a brokenness in, 42, in 43, chapter 43. In 42, he has confidence. He orders the boys, go down and get some grain first. He seems confident. But, but here in verse 2, notice he uses the term, but buy us a little food. He, there's a different, a different uh, tone to this. Jacob seems almost depressed, and he's lost focus of the family business here. And doubtless the boys are probably running the ranch and keeping things afloat, but they're riddled with guilt. <laughs> this is not somewhere you want to like work for right now. The, the front office is a mess. The managers, which would be the sons, they're a mess. They're riddled with guilt. Dad's in the corner depressed because of sin. I mean, if you were a help in this place, you'd probably, man, I've got to get another job. This is a difficult place to be around. Notice verse 3 through 5. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, uh, Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man, I love this term, they keep calling Joseph the man, he is the man, um, solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. That's Benjamin he's speaking of. And he, if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. That's the condition here, verse five. But if you do not send him, we will not go down for the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brothers, your brothers with you. So you remember in the last chapter, Reuben kind of lost it, right? He, and he lost his influence. He said, you know, just murder my sons if I can't get this done. It was so over the top. And so he's kind of been pushed off to the side. Now, now Judah seems to be coming to the forefront and, and another thought that you look at this and you study this, one of the things that sinful depression, and, and tr- trust me, sin will bring on depression in your life if you don't deal with it every time. It just does. That's what sin does. It dep- it's depressing to a believer. And it'll put you into depression. A lot of people go, oh, I'm a depressed person, I need a drugs. Well, most of the time you need to deal with Sin. And this is what's happening here. And so he just doesn't have the wisdom Jacob should have. And so now one of his sons has to step in. And I'm sure Judah respectfully reminded his father of the situation at hand. But he, he steps up and says, look, dad, things are bad. The man, which is Joseph, 
Uh, he's, he said we can't come down. Now, now, I, now, as you think about Joseph's dreams that the, that the family would bow down before them and he would rule over them is really now becoming a reality here. And they will never see Joseph again as, as anything, and I, you know, I'm sure he'll still be a brother type to them, but he, the rest of what we know of Joseph's life is he is a ruler and a provider for them. He's not just little Joe anymore. From here on out, he, he is the Lord of Egypt. And so all of these dreams that Joseph has sent by God to, to, to share what was going on, Joseph probably understands that. And now the family is seeing the reality, though they have not put all the pieces together yet. Now, many times God uses difficult pressures to direct our life. And I think there's one happening here. They're hungry, <laughs> or they're going to be hungry. Um, things are difficult. When famine hits, when, and I have never been through a famine, but we, we went through some of the California droughts. You probably heard about them when you were back here. And we had a ranch at the time, and, and it's very difficult. If you do not get rain, things just do not grow. Grass doesn't grow. Cattle don't get fat. I mean, it's just a chain reaction to not having rain, and it gets very, very difficult. Ground that would usually cake up and crack just becomes powder, and there's nothing that will grow in it. And you've got to understand that's starting to happen in this situation. They're, they can't produce anything on that. So God is using these difficulties to push them to where they want to be. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Have you had some difficulties in your life that pushed you into somewhere that later you look back and you said, I think God did that. I think God was taking a difficult situation and, and, and narrowing down one road for me to go. I, I use term, you know me, I use ranch terms a lot. There's, they're, they're, you're in a big corral and there's only one gate and he's pushing you out it. And that's what he does often. He puts pressure on you and pushes you to that direction. But often our response, like Jacob's here, is what? Worry, depression, self-pity. Oh God, why has this happened to me? Why did you give me this woman? Why did you give me this man? Why did you give me these children? Why did you give me this job? Why didn't you give me more money? Why do I have this house? Should I go on? We complain. And we become depressed because we don't accept what God has given us. And, and it's so true, though. And we say these things flippantly, but I want to make sure you hear this. God's mercy is greater than our sin. Right? But what do we give up? We give up joy. And God loves his children. He will provide a way out. He provides a way of escape, the New Testament tells us. But what we lose in that is joy. And when you study this text, you go, Jacob has no joy. He's a joyless follower of God at this point in his life. He's depressed. He's blaming his sons. We'll see here just in a minute. Well, why did you tell him all this stuff? And they're going to go, well, what were we supposed to say? We didn't know who, what he was going to do. See, that's what sin does. And this is why marriages struggle, because we blame the other person. We don't trust the sovereignty of God. We tack one another. All of that happens, and there's nothing but depression, strife, and self-pity. And we lose our joy. And Christian, if you lose your joy, what do you have? What will you share with somebody else? Your depression? Well, that's attractive. Come to Riverbend. We're depressed. 
Joy is, is the response of our salvation. Look, 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 what, what he, look what the, he does here, verse six. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly? I think some of these words have come out of my mouth and I'm ashamed. When I look at this, I have to think of my own life. I hope you think of yours as well. Why do you treat me so bad? Why'd you do this to me? By telling the man whether you still had any brothers or a brother. So we think about the impossible sometimes. And then we blame that person who has no way to handle it. And why is he doing this? It's just self-pity, right? And look, at the, look at the brother's response. But they said, the man, I love that term, question particularly about us and our relatives saying is your father still alive have you another brother so we answered his question (laughs) i love this response could we have possibly known that he would say bring your brother down when somebody is in sin and won't repent and does and and gets to a point where they are unrepentant will not confess it will not repent of it will own that sin hold on to it they become unreasonable. And that's what's happening here. Check if unreasonable. The boys are going, Dad, yeah, we can go down there, but we ain't coming back with one piece of grain unless we got Benjamin. It's pretty simple. <laughs> and now you're blaming us. Now, again, they're as guilty as sin, right? For all, for all intents and purposes, they think Joseph's dead somewhere or at at least a slave and there the blood is on their hands they've already said that it's just a mess isn't it this is what sin does it just destroys things so verse six there's sinful hurtful self-centered blame game going on here and you go man jacob's he's a mess well it started in the garden the woman you gave me remember that all right the woman you gave me, Adam, nice. Started the whole thing out, didn't he? And then the wife goes, well, the serpent, where did he go? He deceived me. See, it's always been this way. We blame. We don't own our sin. And the result of that is destruction. Your marriage, your relationship with children, your jobs. I mean, if it, doesn't get, if it does not get repented of, if it does not get turned from, the goal of sin will be to kill everything in its wake. I mean, Christians have to get their mind around this. That's why God has given us such a beautiful relationship with him that Christ has died for that sin and we, we come to him and we repent it, we speak it clearly. God, I did this, name the sin. Will you forgive me? Will you give me grace and mercy that I don't deserve? Will you help me humble myself to that brother, that sister, that family member? Oh, great things happen. Unconfessed sin is a demanding ruler. I want you to catch that. Unconfessed sin is a demanding ruler. And you don't have a bargaining chip. Unconfessed sin tells you what to do and it controls you. That's what it does. And you sit back and lose your joy and and all the things that God wants you to experience, that all goes out because unconfessed sin is a demanding ruler. And pretty soon, here's, and here's what happens, and, and I want, boy, I hope this isn't too heavy, but these are things we have to deal with in our lives, is you'll get accustomed to living with it. 
That's pretty sad. Because I think that's what happens. So we don't want to confess our sins, and so we get used to living that way. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. I want to show you just a verse there in a context that I think maybe will drive this point home way better than I can. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. You've heard what I said. I've given you some phrases here. Let's see if this verse, um, if my phrases uh, stand up against this verse. Do you not know, Romans 6 verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave of obedience, you are slaves of one whom you obey, demanding ruler. Either of sin resulting in death, remember I said sin will kill things, or obedience resulted in righteousness. See, you either become the slave to that sin that Jesus Christ died for, that he, he hung on a cross and took the judgment in your place for, or that sin now rules you. Needlessly. <laughs> That's what's sad about the whole thing, right? When I think about unrepentant sin in my life, I go, why am I doing this? It's like I'm putting Christ back on the cross again in a sense. And, and I, I, you're going, well, Scott, how are you getting us all on Jacob? Well, I, I, this is what happens, right? This is relational. This chapter is so relational. This is dads and sons and wives and grandchildren and, and helpers and servants that are there. It affects everybody in this camp. And, and that's what, really what biblical counseling is about, Friends. It's about coming face to face with the scriptures and going, I'm a slave. <laughs> I'm a slave to this sin. I won't repent of it. I blame everybody else. And now my marriage is crashing. My business is crashing. My relationship with my children is crashing. Whatever it may be. Particularly if it's something that you personally have not repented of. And so I think one more thought here as I move on. If patriarchs, men like this, who have stood and talked to God... Right? You remember that? Watching the elevator, the ladder between heaven and earth can fall. Certainly, we too, if we do not stick close to our Lord with short accounts, we too fall. When you read the Bible, I know I'm in counseling mode here. When you read the Bible, let it counsel you. It's easy to read the Bible for someone else. It's easy to read the Bible. Well, I wish that person would have heard that message. When we read the Bible, we have to say, there go I if I don't repent. You have to look at Jacob and go, I could be just like him. I could be just like, I could be depressed, saddened because I don't get my way and cause a miserable time in our home because I won't repent. And so let the Bible counsel you. It's, it helps so much. And, and, and it, it wants to do this for you. Verse 7 here, the Bible um, tells us in verse 7, the boy's response is a rational one, right? They say, look, Dad, the man said this. We didn't know how to deal with this. This is what he has. So it's interesting. They still are dealing with the guilt on one end, but dad's completely checked out into depression and they can speak truth in one area, but in the area, other area of their life, they're living a lie. 
Do I have to say much more about that? Because that can happen very easily in Christian circles. How you doing on Sunday morning? I'm doing great. Fought with my wife all the way to church, but I'm not telling you that. <laughs> Had a terrible week. But here I'm good, right? Inside those doors and the guys in the green shirts shaking my hand, what is the natural response? Hey, I'm good. How are you? See, we can compartmentalize. Men do this really well. I don't know about women. But men can compartmentalize things. We'll stick things over here and, you know, that's a mess over there. But over here, I'm okay. And yet God sees it all and it's all interrelated. And these boys... They got wisdom to deal with this situation because they left Simeon back in jail. (laughs) It's really real. Yeah, Dad, he's in prison. You're forgetting about him. But on their own behalf, (laughs) they're struggling with terrible guilt. Look at verses 8 through 10. We've got to get moving here. Judah Judah said to his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die as... Uh, we as well as you and all our, all our little ones. I mean, this is a family affair here. Verse 9, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. This is different than how Reuben spoke, isn't it? If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Still got some problems in it, doesn't it? For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. So Judah has some sense here. Um, that dad's kind of checked out. He's lost it. And he kind of steps in and says, listen, dad, here's the problem. This is a serious situation. Simeon's in prison. You don't seem to care. Reuben's lost it and offered to kill his sons if he doesn't bring them back. And if we don't take Benjamin, we're going to lose everything. And if that's not enough, I'll be surety, and you can blame me forever. We'll just stay in a bad relationship the rest of our lives. This is not the answer to a, to a godly family in any way. But your lack of leadership, Dad, is going to cause our death. And we could have been there and back twice if we wouldn't do this. So the consequence of sin have brought this family to really to a brink of destruction, both business and, I think, relationally. Sin is just tearing them apart. And that's the goal of sin. It kills, breaks, and destroys. Second thought, the blurry view of God's plan will come into focus. The blurry view of God's plan will come into focus. It's not blurry to God, and I'll make sure you understand what I mean here. But sometimes it's blurry to us, and mostly time it's blurry to us is when we live in unconfessed sin. We can't see what God is doing. And so Judah's lecture here seems to wake Jacob up in a sense, kind of snap him back into reality here. And the text does not elaborate, but it seems Jacob has had a change of a heart in the middle of this text. Now remember, this is a narrative. This could have been playing out over a day or two of discussion here. In verse 11, we'll pick it up again. Then their father Israel said to them. Now that's an interesting statement. We'll come back to that. Remember that, father Israel here. If, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry, down, carry them down to the man. There he is again as a present. A little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum, uh, myrrh, um, myrrh uh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also 
and, and arise and return to the man. And may the God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. So he will release you, your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, now listen to this. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now notice here, Jacob is called Israel again. And I don't think that's anything by mistake. It's been since chapter 37, verse 13, roughly about 22 years or so since that term was used of him. And mostly during that time, since the Bible calls him Israel, he's had lots of difficulties. He has been in wrong places with God in a sense. But all of a sudden, this text, he's called Israel again, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's a mistake I think there's something happening here. I think there's a, a change of heart that's taking place in Jacob right now. And he begins to appear to have a renewed trust in the Lord. And, and, I, and, I, and I think this is such a good point, and I want to encourage you, because that first point can be a little heavy, right? It's heavy counseling there. But repentance clears our vision. It always does. We start to see things the way God intended them to. If you want to have sin and, and just stay in sin and blame everybody else, it would be very, very difficult to follow God's will to even remotely see what he wants you to do. Repent, his will starts to clear up. And I think that's what's happening here. And he's given again this title, Israel. Father of this nation. And, and I, I don't think it's by chance. And so repentance clears up the spiritual vision now Joseph's second dream starts to come into focus. Jacob, the, the great God-visited patriarch, is, is now about to send his sons to go bow before the man. That's Joseph. He tells them to seek honor of this man, to bring, to bring gifts from him, to give to him. That's exactly what the second dream said they would do. And Jacob is now, um, whether he fully understands it or not, is leading his boys to the fulfillment of this vision, this dream. In verse 12, he says, double the money. I think he now has a better, a, a better outlook. Notice he thinks, well, maybe it was a mistake. I think that Joseph earlier in the passage go, well, they did that to on purpose, let's get them. You know? Now he's going, hey, hey, there might have been a mistake, let's take, let's take double money back. You can just see a change of heart, isn't it? He's, he's different, he's soft, he's, he's thinking the best instead of the worst, right? He goes from, why'd you do this to me? Well, maybe he didn't mean to do that. I think that's what happens to us, right? When we, when we repent of sin, we have a better outlook. We're a little easier to live with. We have more grace to give. You know what? They may have made a mistake. When we're in sin, we go, they did it to me on purpose, I'm gonna get them. <laughs> that's what happens. And here he goes, hey, could have been a mistake. Verse 13 Take Ben with you. Benjamin needs to go. Take him to the man. And then verse 14. This is why you see a change. I, I think. I, I, I really believe studying this is what I got. And look what he says. And the, may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. He hasn't been talking that way for quite some time. See, he's returned to what he believes. And I love this when we think through this. When we repent, there's, there's a refreshing that happens. There's a worship that comes forth. We see God like we haven't seen him before for a little while. God Almighty, ruler and creator, the sovereign one. We start talking about sovereignty again, right? When we're in sin, we don't like sovereignty. 
or we'll, we'll use it for escape sometimes, but, but we don't like it. But when we repent, we start to see his sovereignty again. And he says, goes on to, so that he will release to your brother. So he'll, he'll do these things, and, and, and God is compassionate, and he starts to tie this in. And then he says, but if he dies, he dies. I, I, I understand now. God's sovereign. He's willing to give up his son for another son. And it's, it's, it's an interesting passage. And this change of heart has placed Jacob, I think, back in the rightful place of the leader of the nation. Repentance, reconciliation, restoration, healing, clarity of God's will, all that's starting to happen as he trusts in the sovereign living God again. And once again, Jacob's called on the almighty God. He hasn't used that term. This hasn't been used since chapter 28, verse 3, when he was looking at that ladder. That's the last time he called God Almighty. And now he's speaking that again. And, and repentance does this for us. And, and I guess I wrote in my notes, I said, is there anything in our lives that we need to, to repent of and, and have our view of the sovereignty of God refreshed in? Because if we stay in sin, we'll miss his sovereignty. Third, unrepentance and guilt causes deep tension. Now we turn our attention to the boys, right? Uh, I was thinking about this today. Even, even unsaved prisoners, and if you've worked with prisoners or been around them, I've had prison ministries off and on, even an unsaved prisoner experiences great relief when they confess what they did, when they lied through court and lied to cops and lied to... When they finally get to the point where they confess it, they feel, they feel like this weight came off. No, many times, and I know there's great testimonies, many of them come to faith through, through some of these things, but there's a great weight. But, but the continual blame shift... Um, to the grave will never give you peace. And, and these boys, now they've, they've stood up and they told dad some good things, but they're still carrying this massive weight of guilt. And there's tension here. Look at verse 15 through 17. So the men took, the, uh, so the men took this present, this present they put together, and they took double the money in their hands and Benjamin. And then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. They did everything Joseph asked. The ruler has asked, and they're bowing before him, not only physically, they've been bowing before his instructions now. Verse 16, then Joseph saw Benjamin with them, and he said, and he said to his house steward, bring the men into my house and slay an animal and make, make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the, so the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, the narrative skips the trip. Uh, that, that'd be kind of a fun one, Right? <laughs> to hear how those conversations went on. You know, well, we really took it to dad, but, you know, do they, you know I don't, if you stay in sin a long time, you're either not going to talk about it or just dismiss it or turn your back to it, um, but it's there, right? It just kind of follows you. So I'm sure that trip wasn't super fun, but they arrive there, and, and, and these brothers arrive there, and Joseph has them brought into his house. And apparently, there's a practice in Egypt that they have a midday meal. I like that. We, on the ranch, we always did that. We had our big meal at noon. And, and so that's being all prepared. He has a staff charged uh, for this special meal. Now, what, again, what you see is the difference of men who had sought to do Joseph evil. When Joseph has every opportunity to return that evil, he does grace to them. That's a beautiful 
And I think there's a great lesson for us as well. Look at verse 18. Now the men were afraid. Now we just studied in Romans 13 not too long ago that if you do what is right, why should you be afraid? Why are they afraid? The men are afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. There's still this guilt hanging over them. And they said, it's because the money was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in. That he may seek occasion against us and fall on us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. My comment, like you did to the, your little brother. <laughs> you can just see that the sin that they committed, they're afraid is going to happen to them as well. And so the brothers are usher, ushered into Joseph's house. Their guilt begins to rise to the surface. And guilt always impedes clear thinking and communication. And clearly, they don't think the man um, is Joseph. They don't understand that it is Joseph in front of them. But it is also clear that Joseph is experiencing some kind of personal wealth. This is really a nice place he has, right? We're going to put out a spread. We're going to feed these guys. We're going to wash their feet. We're going to do all those things. Look at verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Now listen to this, what goes on here. Oh, my Lord. He's just speaking to the steward here. We indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of the sack, our money in, in full. So we have brought it back in our hands. And we have also brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the food in our sack. Now, right off the bat, you begin to realize that they're, they're trying to get off of this one. And, and they're, they're trying to find anyone they can talk to. And so uh, they're not ready to tell Joseph all of this, but they got a servant of his, and so they're going to divulge all of these things. And then look what verse 23 says. This is amazing, probably the highlight verse here. And he, this is the steward, this is the servant that works for Joseph. Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sack. I had your money. And then he brought out Simeon to them. What an amazing statement here. The hours before Joseph's appearance must have been difficult. They're probably waiting for him to come home at noon. They're, they're intense. They're trying to find somebody to explain their problem to. But immediately the brothers tempt, attempt to explain their innocence to, to someone to listen. And clearly they were afraid not to be. And think about that. They don't want to be condemned for what they didn't do, but they don't want to repent for what they did. You see that? That's why it's all confusing. And this is what happens to us. We'll maybe be trapped in some kind of sin, but then we'll go, well, but I didn't do this over here. It really wipes everything out because we're so guilty of the other sins. I, I, I love this verse 23. I think it's so intriguing. This house steward insists that he put the money back in their sacks, and then he adds this, your God and the God of your father has given your treasure in your sack. He uses the word Elohim here. It's a word for God that's plural, um, it speaks of the plurality of God in the sense that uh, he's a great and mighty God. And it, I think the point here is, is it's, such a, it's, it's such a difference between uh, an Egyptian God uh, in a singular way. And, and, and I think it's very impressive and, and very possible here. As I read this, I thought, Joseph has won his house possibly to the worship of the Lord. It, he lives in a pagan world. They worship frogs, the sun. They, they worship everything. All these, these uh, uh, polytheistic is the word I want, the multitude of gods. 
But yet the true and living God, the, the, the triune God, Elohim, now is spoken of this, by this man. And he says, look, you, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure. You don't realize this. Your God's blessing you. But you're, you are absolutely bound by your sin. He doesn't know that, but that's what's happened. And, and I, but, I, but I think there's great credit goes to the life of Joseph here. Because even when he tells the dream, if I can remember this right, Pharaoh says, the creator God has revealed this to you. Everywhere Joseph goes, people know about his God. Boy, isn't that a good statement? I don't know that can be said of me all the time. What about you? Everywhere you go, does people know about your God? And Joseph, he continues to have this profound effect in this culture that's anti-living God. So it's a good reminder as we move into difficult times. Four, from suspects to honored guests, look at verse 24. Then the man brought the men to, into Joseph's house and gave them water and he washed their feet and gave their donkeys, uh, donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. So verse 24, the there's great kindness showed them, right? They, they, they don't deserve this, but kindness is shown to them. This man takes care of them. He washes their feet. He feeds their animals. 25, they know Joseph is coming at the noon meal, and the brothers prepare this gift. You can kind of see this scene. They're nervous. Um, they, they feel like there's still blood on their hands from the death of Joseph, um, and yet they know they're in big trouble because they have money in their sack, and, and one of their brothers is in prison, and so there's our tension here. And then verse 26, and when Joseph came in, they brought him, they brought him into the house, the present, which, which was in their hand, and bowed to the ground before them. And here's that fulfillment of this dream that God had given, and they have gifts, and they're offering it to him, and they're bowing down, and Jacob helped put this together. And then verse 27 and 28, then he asked them about their welfare, and said, is your, is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. They bowed down again. All fulfilling these things. And so they give Joseph this gift. And, and, and it's almost like Joseph's meeting with these business associates, right, that are coming in. And, and these business associates from another land are giving them gifts. And the brothers respond, assuring Joseph that their father is well. And again, they bow down. And then the details that are recorded in the rest of this chapter are fascinating. Look at 29 through 34, and we'll just mention a few things that will be done here. As he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Wow. And Joseph hurried out. For he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out and controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for his loathing to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to the birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. And he, that's Joseph, took portions to them from his table. But Benjamin portions of five times as much 
as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. There's this lavish presentation of food given to them. Remember, Jacob said, go so we don't die, right? And here, this grace is abundant. This lavish meal is put out in front of them. And and Joseph sends portions to his brother's table. And then he gives Benjamin five times the amount. And, And I would imagine that some of the Egyptian guests that that didn't understand this whole scene that were probably there may have been perplexed at the hospitality of Joseph. And maybe they had heard that Joseph had restored their money and maybe they had heard that one of the brothers was in prison. And it is possible that many were just watching with intrigue. They were saying, wow, how kind this ruler of Egypt is to them. I think the key passages in this last phrase are verse 29 through 31, and we'll just end with this. It says that he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. You know the story here. He, he's able to talk for a moment, and then verse 30, he just becomes overwhelmed with emotion. I mean, maybe if you and I were in this situation, and you love this brother as much as Joseph did, you could be really angry that you stole these 20 years from him. I missed growing up with him because of you. And yet, he has such compassion and so much that he, he is stirred. And one of the things that hit me as I, as I studied this, I said, the wrong man's weeping. <laughs> Not really. This is the character of Joseph. But the other men should be weeping. They should, at this point, realize, God, why are you doing this? We, we have done such horrible things. There should be repentance that should come out at this point. And yet, the one who has done what is right is experiencing great emotions. And I, and I, don't, I don't know that you should take this as he went away weeping in sorrow. I think it's joy. I think it's contentment with a God who does what's right when it doesn't seem like it is for the longest time. And maybe it's an explosion of just gratitude towards God as he looks on his brothers. And this passage shows the emotion of Joseph. He becomes overwhelmed. There's no anger, there's no vengeance, there's no bitterness. Though the sin was committed against him years ago. All of that's gone. Remember, he named his son that, forgotten. And he he lives up to that. And perhaps Joseph's brothers think that they're having some good luck now and and maybe they see that Benjamin, boy, he's really hit it off with this Lord of Egypt. Maybe we're going to get out of this. Maybe we're just not going to have to deal with our problems, right? And they probably feel a little safe and happy. The text says that they seem to be really enjoying themselves. They feasted and drank freely with him. In verse 34, but clearly Joseph is unsure of his brother's repentance. And think about what he's going to do. And he says, really, in, 40, in chapter 44, how will they react against the sacrifice of Benjamin? Everything seems good now. You got your way. What if I take something from you, like Benjamin? What if I, what if I come and attack you and take away your personal welfare, the cost of something? How will you respond? And Joseph's going to put him through one more final text, and that's chapter 44, and we'll see it next week. But what, as I close, I just want to remind you, this stuff is so fun to read because it's so us. And if you have 
unresolved sin in your relationships with people, go to the Lord, repent, go to them. Ask forgiveness. Do it tonight. Don't wait. Don't let it get to like this. Repent and and find joy again. Don't lose your joy. Repent of your sins and walk with the almighty God who's sovereign in all things. Father, thank you for these beautiful reminders, Lord. So long ago this happened, and yet probably many of us, as we listen to this message and read these verses, say, that's my family. We got all kinds of brokenness in it and blame shifting and and maybe there's even some in here that says, that's my marriage. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would believe that your mercies are new every day. Every morning they're new. You are a merciful God. And when we repent and turn from sin, you are there to heal. And yes, Lord, we may suffer some consequences, but you are even gracious in consequences. So, Lord, let us not stay in this miserable depression that sin brings upon us. May we repent, confess, repent, turn from that sin and be reconciled. This is what you call of us, Lord. Thank you for giving us this ability, Lord. Your son died so we can do this. We don't have to live this way. We're so grateful for this. We praise you for these things, Lord. Thank you for each and every one of these folks here tonight. Bless them, Lord. Give them strength to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.